Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I'm Nomi Key Kanz and we have 18 days, 18 days until the election. Americans overwhelmingly believe that this election matters. Let me share a couple of findings from a poll by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. 86% of voters think that the outcome of this election will have serious consequences for the country. And 52% feel it will have a large impact on them personally. Three quarters of Americans in that poll say that the country is off on the wrong track. Even Republicans are jumping off of Trump's sinking ship. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska denounced Donald Trump at a town hall with constituents on Wednesday. He said he was bracing for a reckoning in which Republicans would be forced to answer, and I am quoting Senator Sass right here, quote, what the heck were, were any of us thinking that selling a TV-obsessed, narcissistic individual to the American people was a good idea, end quote? I hope that Democrats listen too, because they love to mimic whatever worked for Republicans, so maybe they'll stop propping up billionaires who also have TV careers uh, to challenge the Republicans, but that's another story. So Senator says, I really look forward to your answer. But as progressives, we have a bigger challenge. What is this election actually about? Is it just a rejection of Trump and Trumpism? It's a good start, of course. But of course, it's not nearly enough. The voters don't want our country to be Trumpland. Sure. But we need to talk about what we do want to be as a country. Who are we as a country? We loved Bernie for being out front on this, pretty much the only one doing so. But it will hopefully be Joe Biden who takes the oath of office next January. So it will be on him to lead on this. He will take office 30 years after the end of the Cold War. Yet we are still behaving like the superpower that brought down the Soviet Union in 1991. That's how we are acting right now. We spend money on the military as if that is what makes us strong around the world. In the meantime, we have defunded everything else except the military and the militarized police, of course. The time has come to face that this undermined us both around the world and at home. We need to invest in our people. And the Green New Deal is a wonderful start. We need billions of dollars to bring back our public schools and end the systemic inequities across this country. We need billions more to train workers for new, well-paid jobs. And we need to make things again, not just consume them. Sure, we can raise taxes on rich people, and we should, because God knows that they can afford it. But the reality is that a lot of the money to invest in our people is going to come from the vast overspending on what we euphemistically call defense. We keep inventing new explanations for all that spending. The war on terror, the rising dragon China, or one of my favorites from the Pentagon itself. You ready for this? We need to defend our supply chains around the world. Defend our supply chains or defend capital. Oh, right. Okay, that's what it's about. Well, not if we do more of our own production right here. Here's my point. This isn't about trimming fat from the Pentagon budget. This is about redefining who we want to be as a people and a country, what we want to represent internationally so that we're a value beyond military. Our military strength isn't what made America great. Our people made America great. That's from Biden himself. Our people's creativity, our innovativeness, our diversity and ambition. The next president has an opportunity to make our people great again with education, training, and work that's well-paying and actually matters. Being patriotic should not mean treating Americans like a consumer base, but treating Americans as what keeps us that world power. It is about the Americans. It's not about the military might. How can you be a world power if your own country has been gutted, exploited, and impoverished? As we have said here before, Biden needs to win by big margins to block what clearly will be Trump's effort to deny the election results. But Biden also needs to build popular support so he can lead in a post-Trump world. That means talking about key challenges, like where will we get the money to properly invest in our people? Who will we tax? How will we reallocate funds from the budget? It will strengthen America to reduce our military spending, and Biden should start saying so. 
Right now, it seems like every Democrat's afraid of doing so, but he has to start. So we have a great show today. This is Femme Friday, and we are going to start off the day by talking with Brianna Westbrook. She is a former Bernie Sanders surrogate. She's from Arizona. She's going to talk about the swing state of Arizona. I know I'm bringing it up a lot, but trust me, it matters. They're pouring a lot of money into Arizona right now. And then later we talk about what is at stake for working women in this election and because of the pandemic with Jamie Augustine and Kate Albright-Hanna. Here's a look at some of the stories in my feed today. Facebook moderators face profoundly exploitative working conditions. They curate site, site posting for user friendliness while confronting content that threatens their mental health. Not only has Facebook made no real effort to ease this strain upon their workers who describe a toxic work environment, but it is now forcing these workers to return on-site to on-site tasks in the middle of a pandemic. These workers already receive a substandard living wage. They deserve fair pay, full physical and mental health care, and a smooth transition to remote work. It's a reminder that Facebook re relies upon brutal and oppressive treatment of its workers and that there is no system in place to hold it accountable or bring it to justice. We are looking at you, Congress. A spokesman for the watchdog group Demand Justice offered a critique of Senator Dianne Feinstein's handling of her part in the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett. According to Brian Fallon, who was the spokesperson for Hillary Clinton uh, and now is with Demand Justice, Senator Feinstein, quote, has undercut Democrats' positions at every step of this process, from undermining calls for a filibuster and court reform, straight through to thanking Republicans for the most egregious partisan power grab in modern history of the Supreme Court. That is the end quote. It is a powerful, powerful reminder that the toxic, toxic anti-common, good political establishment in America is a bipartisan effort. All right, we will be right back with Brianna Westbrook. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm excited to have our next guest, Brianna Westbrook. She was a former Bernie Sanders surrogate uh, this last election cycle. She is also an at-large a uh, member, oh, excuse me a second, I, I think I got that wrong. She is the a leader of the Arizona Democratic Party. Um, she is elected in the actual party uh, infrastructure, and she serves as, an, as a co-chair for the immigrant rights group of, working group of DSA. Did I get that right? I feel like I mixed up some things, Brianna. I put my glasses on. It's like I'm squinting at everything. I'm like, let me read. Little known fact, I can't see, but I used to be able to. <laughs> Yeah, um, you got it. You got it right for the most part. I'm one of the vice chairs for the Arizona Democratic Party. I'm not the the leader um, for the Democratic Party. I'm not the chair, but I'm one of the six vice chairs for the Democratic Party. And thank goodness, because uh, the Democratic Party, really across the country, all these these Democratic parties need tremendous reform. And to have progressives come in, I mean, it doesn't happen without a fight. Um, sometimes they're not paying attention, but it really does take a massive effort to, to get folks in that really understand the dynamics of, of what's at play for working people. You know, you know. I, uh, I completely agree. So, Brianna, um, I want to talk a little bit about Arizona. I, I've mentioned it. We've had a few segments on Arizona and Pennsylvania and some of these swing states. Uh, but there is a ton of money pouring into Arizona right now. And I, I in 2000, I, don't know, I think last time I worked in Arizona was 2006 or so um, on elections. Maybe I'm wrong by a couple of years. But uh, there was a time, 2006 was that year, when Arizona did go blue. There was a, a Democratic governor. There were several uh, members of Congress elected in swing districts, and pretty much those districts have remained Democratic for the most part. Um, yet, we still treat Arizona, and we have been treating Arizona in the last 15 years, like it's a hard-right, crazy Republican conspiracy land. Uh, and, and, and I think, I mean, from my perspective, as a lot of these other states... The Democrats just took their eye off of state parties and organizing. And I mean, thank God there's someone like you now in leadership. But uh, how, how do you feel like the the excitement, the energy, like how do you think? I mean, it's at play now, but what does that mean? How is it different than previous elections? Well, I, I think it's um, really, really exciting because we're now a battleground state for like the first time in a long time, according to a lot of political analysis. Um, 
2020 is is going to be like the best year I think we have um, to flip the state blue and elect um, two Democratic senators. And it's 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 important for a lot of reasons. Um, one, because you know if we turn blue and we send another senator um, to Washington D.C. from Arizona that's Democratic, and we take back the majority, you know we have the ability um, to help push legislation through the Senate, like that S Senator Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or or a progressive. Um, introduces, it, it gives us extra votes and we have the ability to pass some of this big, bold progressive legislation that we uh, so desperately need. In terms of just like how the, the voting has shifted, I mean, it's a growing state. Uh, Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the country. Uh, it's the largest city in, in Arizona. Um, where are these new voters coming from? Like, how is the voting shifting? They're, they're coming from everywhere. Um, you know, hundreds of new people move to the city of Phoenix every single day. Uh, Maricopa County is one of the fastest growing counties in the entire United States. Um, it is 64% of the uh, Arizona electorate. Um, we have a very large um, Latino community out here. Um, mm -hmm. Experts and uh, numbers show like 1.4 million eligible Latino voters. Um, this Put cycle, that in context, which is like amazing. How how big is that compared to the voting population percentage? It's it's, it's huge. Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't know a specific number as far as like percentage, as far as what that translates to, as far as like Democrats, Republicans, Independents. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're pretty split for the most part in regards to political affiliation, as far as registered voters, um, mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats. We have a really large independent. Um, we call them other out here um, party affiliation. And, and how does the independent vote, the other party affiliation? I mean, there, there's a sense in certain states that they lean a little bit. There's no such thing as like a nonpartisan voter, right? They lean one way or another. Traditionally, they lean one way or another. And ideolog ideologically, ideologically, they lean one way or another. Um, is there a sense of, of where their leaning is? Well, you know, this is, this is one of those things I think um, is uh, not... They say that the most majority of these independent other voters are right-leaning, but I feel that that is misconceived um, because for a long time, like you briefly touched on um, prior to this, is Arizona was pretty much forgot, forgotten. Like nobody really did much work here. Um, speaking to like my race, for example, I ran for Congress in 2018 in Arizona's eighth congressional district. It's one of the second reddest districts in um, the state of Arizona. I bring that up because when you look at the, the data and the partisan score in um, VAM, which is the tool that we use to get out the vote, a lot of these independent voters show that they are more leaning to, to right causes. But that's misconceived because for a long time, there has been no candidates running in a lot of these districts, so people don't have an option to vote for anybody else. So it, I think, uh, manipulates the, da the data because we didn't compete everywhere um, and nobody had options to vote for a Democrat, which I'm very excited about this year because Maricopa County in particular, we have somebody running for every position on, the, on countywide seats for the first wow. time in a really, really long time. We have people running for, we have a, a great uh, candidate running for county assessor. We have a great candidate running for um Treasurer, like we're, we we have, we have somebody for every position on the ballot in Maricopa County, and it's it's really historic. I mean, so so a lot of that. Okay, last uh, fifteen years, but really the Obama during the Obama administration, um, Democrats, the money was pulled away from state parties uh, and centralized towards the DNC in Washington, and and moving Obama's. OFA program into like merging the DNC and the OFA program. Um, just a little recap on like how the money was spent. And and now folks are thinking and acting locally, which is amazing that if there's one good thing that came out of Trump getting elected, it's that folks feel like they need to step up and get involved in their communities because, you know, they're paying more attention to what's not getting passed locally or, or oh my God, I'm like voting. There's only a Republican on the ballot and I don't want to vote for this person. It's uncontested. It, you know, there's no awakening happening. With that being said, like you're, you're in the party, you're in the Arizona party. Or is there more help actually coming from the party itself at the state level or enough to actually facilitate and recruit and train candidates? Or are these just people who are like, I'm running. And that's why every seat is being challenged. Well, I think a lot of our county parties are stepping up um, to, to really help out. 
um, like the Maricopa County Democrats, for example, like I said, largest county in Arizona, you know, they've created different working committees for specific um, get out the vote efforts, specific community outreach. Like we have a black um, um, committee, we have a Latinx committee, we have a young Democrats, like we are trying to connect um, with all of these different important electorates that we have to turn out in this election. And while we're doing that work, um, we're also inspiring people, I think, to run for office. And I think that also is one of these pieces to the puzzle um, for expanding the electorate and, and growing the Arizona Democratic Party. That's good. And, and so how does that incorporate with DSA? I mean, you're a DSA member and you're part of the, the Democratic Party. That's amazing. I, <laughs> as someone who's also the same, I feel like it's a, it's, it's a lonely place sometimes. You're lonely in the DSA community because you're like a little bit too, <laughs> too electoral. And then you're like very lonely in the Democratic Party because you're the, the other. So <laughs> how does that play out? Um, it's, it's interesting for sure. Um, <laughs> it's, it's two radically different um, organizing spaces. Um, and I feel um, as a leftist that we have to organize in every capacity possible in as many spaces as possible to bring our ideas in um, and to grow um, support for the causes that we're so passionate about. And, you know, part of this, I believe, in regards to like getting progressive policy passed and um, getting more progressive leaders into elected office is understanding power structures and how to work within them um, to best advance the policies that, you know, we, we so need as a country. Um, so that's why I got in the Democratic Party. Um, that's why I'm, I'm working within the Democratic Party. I'm growing it, I'm recruiting people to run for things like precinct committee person, which is mm -hmm. a, an incredibly important position. I know, um, you know, some folks might not know about it, but basically I like to translate it as you're captain for um, your local voting precinct and you're in charge of getting the vote out um, or expanding the Democratic Party inside your little voting precinct. Um, so, you know, that's, it's huge, there's a lot of power there. And I'd say there's a lot of power there because you know, when you're a precinct committee person, for example, like in Maricopa County, um, you can vote on your elected leadership to re represent the county party executive mm -hmm. board. You can introduce resolutions to shift um, the county party um, platform. Um, there's, there's, there's huge, huge benefits to being active within the party structure. And if enough of us do it, um, we can create some, some big change. So what are the kind of things that like, let's break it down a little bit when, because um, it really de does depend on your state, but for the most part, I mean, I live in New York, uh, it's, you know, pretty closed off, can't, can't get in. <laughs> it's, it's a very controlled uh, circumstance. But, you know, here, like, what, what are the decisions that are being made when you're, other than the platform, like, when, when you, when you take position? Um. I, uh, for example, myself, I'm on the, the state executive board. There's things that get decided like, uh, you know, messaging um, positions on particular, you know, ballot initiatives. Like if you want to support it, like we recently endorsed Prop 208, um, which is going to help what? fund our schools. It's going to help fund our schools. Uh, Prop 208, what it is, is it enacts the three and a half percent income tax on existing incomes. Um, over $250,000 single filing or $500,000 joint filing. And it's going to distribute the tax revenue um, to teacher and classroom staff, support, Good. salaries, um, teacher mentoring, retention programs, technical, edu technical education programs, um, the Arizona Teachers Academy. Um, that's fantastic. I mean, does it seem like it's gonna pass? Um, I, think, I, think, I think it really will. Um, I, we had a, a similar initiative um, on, the, on the ballot a couple of years ago. Uh, Prop 305, but the Judicial um, Supreme Court, Arizona Supreme Court, threw it out. Are you serious? Is, yeah. I mean, is the Supreme uh, Court all Republican too? Well, it's 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 right leaning for the most part, um, and you know, and those are the things that that matter. And, and you know, speaking of that, you know, making sure that you vote for these down ballot races and paying attention to these judicial races. Don't just circle bubbles to circle bubbles. Um, you know, there's a lot of great organizations out there that are doing, um, you know, creating ballot guides and, you know, cheat sheets and stuff to, to vote for the best candidate. Um, but these lower offices, you know, are, are extremely important. And it's important that recruit people for those positions. And it's important we vote for folks in those positions. So when you're filling out your ballot in Arizona or any other state, start at the bottom and work your way up. It, that makes a good point, though, because, you know, now that you're a, you're a swing state, Arizona is a swing state, battleground state. Um, 
a lot of money is being poured in by the Biden campaign and, and God knows they're raising a ton of money right now. But as a result, that really does help down ballot, not just races, but but these ballot items like, you know, everybody remembers the protests that happened from teachers. Arizona's right to work state. Um, teachers were organizing and hopefully they'll be doing it again because so many teachers are put at risk right now being forced in Arizona and across the country to go back to school and, and teach and um, in a pandemic. And there's very little recognition of like what's at stake. So to be able to um, have that ballot item on on a presidential ballot, especially when your state now matters and Democrats are putting money, it really has long term implications. A friend of mine, just as a as a side note, he's a teacher. He has three kids. He's a seventh grade teacher, and he in Arizona, Phoenix. And he, uh, one of his kids, tested positive for COVID, and one of his children um, is extremely sick right now. was was in the hospital, just born, uh, newborn, and has been in ICU. And you know, and he's now putting his own child at risk because he has to teach. Not to mention, he's trying to fundraise three thousand dollars right now to pay for school supplies because the schools have not fully been funded or are not equipping teachers with the proper tools needed in a pandemic or otherwise. So this is what is at stake. So when folks say like, "I'm staying home, I'm not voting," well, you know what? Like, you got to think a little bit more, a little bit more nuanced than that because this is what's at stake. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of school boards, you know, these are folks that decided to send people back to in-person learning. So like voting for school board and running for school board is very, very important. That's right. And especially in states like Arizona, where the legislatures are more conservative than the general population. It's, you know, ultimately they do want you to stay home. They don't want you to be involved. They don't want you paying attention to these local races. That's why the Koch brothers and others have put so much money over the last 40 years into states like Arizona so that they can take over the legislatures and really protect themselves and their capital for the next two generations, three generations, four generations, and the courts, of course. Um, Brianna, this is this is super interesting. You know, please keep us updated on like what's happening on the ground. And uh, you know, I'm hoping I'm hoping that, you know, you guys are able to to maybe maybe win it for the country. Then people will pay attention. <laughs> We're absolutely going to win it for the country. Um, there's a lot of great organizations out here doing work, and we have a united front on the left. So I have a, I have a feeling we're going to send um, Mark Kelly to the Senate for sure. And then after that, you can get some more progressive ones. Yes. <laughs> I'll editorialize there. Mark Kelly for now. Either he becomes progressive or someone else will become. <laughs> Just I'll throw that. I'm looking for people. I'm looking at you. So hopefully... <laughs> Well, that's why we have to continue organizing. And on November 4th, we have to continue to show up, continue to mobilize our communities. The work doesn't stop just because there's a, you know, a Democrat in office. we got to push these people to support things like Medicare for all. Um, voting is just one passive tactic we can do to organize change, um, to create change. So it's very, very important that we continue to build this multicultural, multi-generational movement and continue to demand more from our elected officials. And on that note, I just want to give you a shout out. Uh, Brianna is also on the advisory board for Matriarch, which is a political action committee, NSC4, that supports working women who, progressive working women especially, who are running for Congress. And you've been a great advisor as a former candidate yourself, as somebody who's been involved in the party, uh, who's involved in the movement. And so it's, you know, just on behalf of everybody at Matriarch, we're thanking you. We're very, we're very grateful. You're welcome. All right. Up next, we will be back with our panel. We're going to be talking about some some hot issues like uh, why women are facing more uh, struggles. Shocker. During this recession and the pandemic and many more issues, uh, spicy issues like what's going on with the wing. If you don't know what the wing is, stick around. You'll see that. And then we'll also be. We will be uh, not premiering, but we'll be showing you guys the latest Lincoln Project ad because they're such feminists. Those those guys at the Lincoln Project, they they know how to speak to women. So you definitely want to see that. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. I'm super excited. This is Fem Friday. Uh, if you are new to the show, and you haven't subscribed yet, go go in there and just subscribe. Then you'll know every day at 3 p.m. from 3 to 4, we have the show and we put out other clips. And if you want extra content, you want to listen to it as a podcast, join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show and make sure to smash that like. 
that's how we do this. That is how we make sure more women, more progressive women are featured on YouTube because I I don't care. I am Fem Friday. I'm never letting go of this day. This is something that's super important to me because there really aren't enough female voices out there in media just in general, but especially progressive women. So I'm hoping that we can at least um, introduce everyone to new voices, uh, new thinkers who, you know, are not normally in this space. Uh, we have Kate Albright-Hanna, who was joining us the other day. We had a few little tech glitches. I'm so happy she's back for Fem Friday, though, because Kate is not only... Uh, an incredible activist. She's a documentary producer, award-winning documentary producer. She was on the Obama campaign in 2008. She's a writer. She ran for office. She is a truly Renaissance woman activist media figure. Uh, but she's also on the board of directors of Matriarch, which we were talking about earlier with Brianna, which is an organization focused on electing progressive working class women to Congress and beyond, hopefully. And then we have Jamie Augustine, who, uh, uh, welcome to the show for the first time. Jamie is, she's an immigrant rights activist. She's a paralegal as well. And I love her takes on Twitter. And we just started chatting on Twitter. And I was like, okay, you got to come on the show. Let's just make this happen. So, um, so I want to start off. This is um, the latest ad from the Lincoln Project. Of course, the Lincoln Project was founded by Republican men. Uh, I want to make sure it's Republican men who are now supporting Joe Biden. Shocker. Uh, because, you know, it's for the good of the nation because Joe Biden's, you know, much more distinguished and, you know, knows how to talk to humans at least a little bit better than Donald Trump. So so they have put out an ad, uh, you know, really supporting the Biden-Harris ticket. Can we play that ad real quick, Dorsey? Imagine a young girl looking in the mirror searching for role models in the world to give her hope that one day she too can make a difference. Now imagine how she feels when she watches women being verbally attacked. What a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. But I watch you a lot. You ask a lot of stupid questions. Maligned. And this monster that was on stage with uh, Mike Pence, who destroyed her last night, by the way. But Belittled. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. I'm sorry? Blood Harassed. Her eyes. Blood coming out of her, wherever. Insulted. And I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers. I'd say, Your daughters are listening and absorbing that message right in front of your eyes. Now imagine a different future for her. A future with a president who doesn't just value a female voice, but chooses one to be his right-hand woman. A strong woman. A woman with compassion. A woman unafraid to take on a bully. And I want to add, if Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I'm speaking. A woman who not only believes in the American dream, she embodies it. Imagine that little girl in the mirror, because that little girl is yours. And your actions on November 3rd will define who she sees. Vote for change. Vote for her. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. All right. So th- this ad, we, we know who it came from. But I guess my question is, do you, do you think this is like, I mean, barring everything else that's like part of this election, uh, is this going to like move the, vo- the the female voters that like may have voted for Trump is that is that who this is geared towards? Go to Jamie first. Um, honestly, like I don't think it would really sway anybody that ad with uh, the ones targeted at Trump that voted for Trump because I feel like they voted for him. Well, because like uh, they are they consider nope. themselves feminists, but I don't really think they are. But for them to really change their mindset of whether to vote for Biden or not. That- they themselves don't see anything wrong with the way he talks to women. Right. That's that's an interesting point. Like, you, you have obviously two men um, who have uh, interesting and verifiably complicated histories with women um, and, and how they deal. Obviously, Trump was, was way worse. Let's just make that very clear. Um, but I, I, I just, I guess the question is, like, what's the message to win the independent woman if that's what they're trying to win? Kate, you've, you've been in messaging in on presidential races like how would you message that ad look you're on mute kate i'm just so embarrassed because i make propaganda for a living and and i don't even like the lincoln project and yet i started crying and i ah, it's so embarrassing i have a a one-year-old daughter so i just like me oh 
I'm so embarrassed because like- but you're not I don't the swayable even... vote. You're not the voter who needs to be swayed. I know, but I do, I've been living in a small town. Uh, my other identity is I'm on the board of rural organizing. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, voters in red states and mm -hmm. uh, in small towns across the country. And, you know, there are certain values that everybody holds on the left and the right. And I think that if you get at people, uh, you just start talking to them about their family. And I know women mm. who are my neighbors um, in that small town who, who voted for Trump, who have daughters. And I could see them being, I mean, even I, who I consider myself with a hard outer shell, like that impacted me. But I am also like, Full disclosure: somebody who cried at uh, Wonder Woman, and that was also embarrassing. So, you know. <laughs> so basically, what you're saying is that women are emotional, Kate. Is that is that the, oh the is that what we're putting out <laughs> to the world right now? Listen, guys, we are thinkers, we are doers, we are progressive, we have an economic policy, but we also can cry, and we're going to own it. Okay. <laughs> we're emotionally intelligent. So. There you go. There. You go. That's actually much more accurate. We don't hold our feelings inside and then burst out and start wars <laughs> with people. Um, hopefully. So, okay, on that note, I mean, I think we've played enough of that ad that it, it's maddening. I mean, from my perspective, I just think that they should maybe touch on some policies that might sway those uh, independent voters that are or whatever voters, that moving the, the Trump voters back into the, the category of Biden. But what I also say is... I would say... Yeah. But I would say that voters, like you were talking about that with your previous guests, like those voters don't have a clear ideology sometimes. Like, I do think that people who call themselves independents are often actually do vote on emotion. And they're just kind of like, do I like the person? Like, what's yeah. the vibe? And I feel like, um, you know, anybody who hasn't made up their mind at this point, they're just sort of, I think that they are a little more vulnerable to uh, uh, pitches that are based on emotion and personality than they are on policies. Because if you haven't figured it out by now, what you believe and what policies you're looking for, then I don't think you're really... You mean in. Ken Bone? <laughs> Ken Bone still hasn't figured it out, he says. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Most Ken Bone man is in America. <laughs> trying to get on TV again. Um, <laughs> but uh, there, there is something to be said, though. Like, okay, so in, in 2016, Hillary's whole move was to sway these women with the very same message. And their whole play is, okay, well, we're going to have Biden. And, like, that'll fix it. We'll just take all the misogynists that, that voted for Trump are going to go back to Biden camp. And it seems, I don't know, maybe that's not working. Maybe that's a signal. I, I'm actually concerned this ad's out. Well, Amy, here's Amy, the Amy. twist, though. The Republicans are using the same message for their Supreme Court nominee. So everybody's jumping on the same messaging train. So maybe it all cancels each other out or maybe just like the feminist like movement is going to explode since left and right are united in uh believing that we need women in positions of power it's, maybe what's going to happen is we're just going to have every branch of government filled with women from the neoliberal and republican side <laughs> all right i think jamie's having a couple of tech issues are you good jamie how's that how's it sound let's see how you sound all right well uh, well yep you sound good can you hear me? I think. yep we can hear you great so women, um, there was a CNN article came out a, a, actually a couple months ago, but it's been reinvented and, and reassessed many times over uh, that women are hit harder by the coronavirus recession. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, warns that governments need to act now because that is a problem. So, uh, Dorsey, do we have that article? Can we just show that on screen real quick to give people a sense? This is from July, um, at the end of July, I believe, is when when this uh, this story came out. But essentially, governments are being warned by these external agents which really don't have political, I mean, they're, they're very capitalistic, of course, but they don't have any sort of political agendas. And I think it's really interesting because they're, they're, it's not just the IMF, the WHO has come out with statements. They're basically pushing governments to put women first in an economic sense. So, I mean, it, Jamie, when, when you look at, like, who's on the front lines right now of the pandemic in the U.S., you've got the, the most vulnerable Americans. You have with families in cages who um, are have, getting hysterectomies, who have been dealing with coronavirus because we're all, you know, stuffed in together in these cages. The children aren't getting it. And, of course, you know, they don't have proper housing, proper clothing, and they don't have representation. And then it just moves outwards. So what do you think Biden should do um, to address this in a more specific and clear way? 
Oh, I think we're still having an issue. It's like the bad luck. Kate's good now, and this is Kate last week. All right, let's go to Kate, Kate real quick. What do you think should how they should prioritize this and connect these the dots on these issues? <laughs> well, I mean, the problem with Biden and the Democrats is that they're they have one strategy, which is like just it's always defensive, like just like let Trump hang himself. So there's not a lot of proactive vision stuff because they're afraid to say anything. They just like being silent kind of working for them. So it's not like he's coming out there and, you know, putting forth some vision that uh, gives us hope. Um, so yeah, like putting, um, standing up, giving a big speech that like comprehensively tackles like really fundamental problems with our economy. I mean, just the idea that um, for so long, we've gone along with the fiction that um, schools um, are not the way that women especially are able to work and have livelihoods, that um, the fact that your kid can um, go to another building, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, um, that's just childcare and make mothers feel bad for saying, actually, I needed that childcare. So mm -hmm. just like fundamentally, there's a problem in our society where we don't take care um, of children so that um, family members, usually moms, um, can actually go and make money for their family. So there's like all these fundamental problems with our culture right now that are being laid bare by the pandemic. And really nobody is addressing the really fundamental problems. And there's no super exciting vision uh, that is being laid forth as like the foundation of, you know, how we're going to go into 2021 and sort of uh, remake our world. Um, we're just trying to stem the bleeding right now. And that I, and it's good yeah. enough for me. Like I'm voting for Biden. Like let's do it. Let's get rid of like the malignant force that's actually um, sucking us all dry. Like we have to get Trump out of there. But um, it doesn't mean that Biden actually has put forth any muscular vision of like how we're going to change our ways. But it's not even. I mean, what's really unfortunate about this is and why I specifically want to do this segment every week is because even on the left. This is not articulated, the, 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 the socialist left even, does not, it's not front and center with every issue that we address in terms of, of, of progressive policies, in terms of progressive economics. You know, undeniably, throughout time, you know, women are on the front lines of economic inequality. And of course, it's worse if, if you're a woman of color, if you're undocumented, and beyond. I mean, that is, all women face are on the front lines and it just gets worse as you go um, into different different categories, right? So I, there was a report that came out a few months ago around um, how women who, during the pandemic and and especially the quarantine, so first you have just the quarantine itself where, where folks are forced to stay home, kids are forced to stay home, and many women that are working are still working, working longer hours just because that's ended up happening during the pandemic, but then also taking care, doing household chores in a way that was, um, you know, unpaid household chores. And so they, right away, a bunch of feminist authors, probably more like mainstream feminist authors started saying like, whoa, 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 women are suddenly like getting sucked into doing more work than ever and it's not getting paid. And of course it's causing more stress. Add to it just the economic stress, people are working, you know, longer hours if they have the opportunity to do so. Um, but. I mean, you, there, there's so many elements of this story. Like, you look at the frontline workforces um, in this pandemic: nurses, majority female-led um, unions, female-led and female and female made up are nurses. Educators, same thing, uh, teachers specifically. So, majority uh, women are are teachers, and it's a woman-led union. Flight attendants, you know, especially in the early months. I mean, they're getting hit so hard. Right now, and Sarah Nelson, of course, the president of the flight attendants workers, she has been has been making the case and, and arguably I think she helped stop the last shutdown. So you look at these industries and there's many more industries beyond this um, home health care workers, you know, same exact thing. Um, women made up majority women made up and women led unions. But for whatever reason, like we just why is it that this is not the message? Like, why can't it just be about the industry, but also like we, you, half of your population, which has more debt, has more schooling, has more jobs as a result, has external jobs are not getting paid for and has childcare issues among all these other issues like the pink tax and all the stuff that like the mainstream liberals want to talk about. Why can't we just connect the dot to this pandemic? And, and that's how you win the woman vote. You want to win those women. That's what you do. Boom. Done. You won Biden. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you see that women across the country are having a collective nervous breakdown. You see that in a lot of the- I just uh, had it. <laughs> and I'm not gonna name it, but certain conspiracies that are out there that are now being adopted by a lot of suburban women. I think that it's just, it's we're literally just breaking down and it's manifesting itself in a lot of different ways. And not all of them are super healthy for our continued civilization. Um, you know, we need to support women if we're going to have a healthy society going forward. And that just means a much more comprehensive social safety net. Um, it means that we, um, you know, we are bailing out certain industries like the airline industry, but we have to, um, you know, the people who are working in uh, more precarious situations, like we have to take care of everybody. Um, right. And it can't just be, you know, one amazing union leader who's going to save one segment. We have to have a much more comprehensive vision. And that's why we have to have solidarity um, among, uh, you know, all classes. And, you know, you know, you get into uh, some forms of feminism <laughs> that maybe uh, don't have that class consciousness. And um, it really just ends up, you know, not making any progress for the whole because we all have to move forward for any of us to move forward. What a great segue because uh, Jamie is back. Thank you so much for coming. I think she was having some technical issues, which everybody is right now. Um, also, just just brief, brief, happy birthday, Jamie. Thank you for joining oh, us. <laughs> it's very exciting. It's Jamie's birthday. Um, so we were just talking about how certain forms of feminism don't are not prioritizing class and 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 the issues that we're facing in this pandemic across across the board in different industries, especially female-led industries and female-made-up industries. Um, with that being said, great. Great segue because uh, I don't know. Do you guys know about this this office space called the Wing? Do you know what this is? I've yeah. heard it. Heard yeah, about I've it. I've never actually hung out there. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the Wing um, is is it was imagined as an inclusive yet protective space for women to work within an empowering female community. Uh, but the resignation of the CEO of Audrey Gelman, um, full disclosure, I know her, along with her apology to women of color who were employed by the company, shows that feminism can't can't lack a class analysis on the, as the relationship between boss and employee, uh, one that was used to marginalize women of color at the company, transcended the theme of, quote, sisterhood on which the company built its brand. All right. So this space, I've been there. It's stunning. It's not just one space. They had a, they grew very quickly. I forgot what the jargon is she used in her like some sort of tech jargon about like rapid growth, blah, 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 blah. And they, yeah, rapid scale. It's like a, some scaly kind of, it's not my space. Okay. <laughs> um, so Audrey, Audrey uh, worked in politics. She worked for Scott Stringer at one point, who's uh, now the Comptroller of New York running for mayor. Uh, so she is definitely from the left and, and the progressive left. I mean, I think that Scott Stringer is least right now is more progressive than the rest of the pack. I love how like, Kate just rolled her eyes at that one. <laughs> I like Scott Stringer. He's fine. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, that's, that's, that was her background. And she started this space in New York. Um, and then quickly, the WeWork CEO, Adam Newman, and the WeWork entity, which is the first rapidly growing, uh, scalable um, workspace that's also under a lot of scrutiny and, and the CEO was pushed out. So they invested in The Wing. And The Wing is a woman-only uh, workspace in New York and beyond. I think they've gone to Los Angeles, all, all over the world, really. And she was featured on the cover of, of like, Inc. Magazine last year. Um, you go in there, it's beautiful, but I can't afford it. I mean, it's expensive. It is. It's crazy. They serve you champagne. They like there's like foot massage. It's it's insane. I went to an event one time there, and I was just like, "What is this place?" The question is, who's giving you those foot massages? Who's giving you the champagne? Are they being paid well? Or how are they being treated? Yep, that's exactly it. And and so you know, it's it's a question of like this was representation, right, of this liberal style of feminism. So. I mean, Jamie, like, is that, is it gone? Is, has this idea been shattered? Are, are like the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world, like starting to understand how their class actually plays into this? Um, well, when I was reading the article, I was like, yeah, of course the hospitality industry has like a whole history about of racism. You know, it stems from like immigrant women really um, and women of color in general, you know, uh, waiting and catering on white women. So like, 
I don't know, like you're going to like a nail salon and it always feels weird, you know, the affluent white woman, you know, the housewife, like they're just, you know, chilling, getting their uh, manicures and pedicures, but like they sometimes disparage the woman, you know, doing their manicures, like they're traditionally Asian women. So like, it'll feel like women empowerment when you're there, obviously like, it's cool, but you have to keep in mind like who is serving you and how that relates to class and race, you know? A lot of times with uh, white feminism, as I like to call it, um, it really just like stems on just how can we improve white women's lives instead of encompassing women of color? Because when you talk about feminism, you also have to talk about racial uh, class inequality. Yeah. You have to talk about um, economic, um, ec the economics of people. You have to talk about like um, like the Green New Deal, for example, it deals with uh, pollution. And, and I mean, who's like living in the polluted areas mostly? It's women of color, you know? And same thing so, with housing too. I mean, it's housing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of conversation in New York right now around NYCHA, which is public housing, because it's the only housing sector in the country that is majority female led. And they were trying to figure out like, well, why, why, like, why is NYCHA other than you know, the fact that women face more? Well, it had to do with the fact that not only redlining remnants of redlining, but they're, they're the, the stop and frisk policies that were locking up one in three black men in this country if those those men came back home, they weren't allowed to live in their homes anymore because there was a federal law that banned, uh, you know, felons from re-entering public housing. So how do you run a household? How do you how do you survive as a family if only one person, not only is is especially if your partner has already has to check a box and may not get hired, yeah, but can't even re-enter their home. It's pretty. It's 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 horrifying. So. Um, I mean, Kate, have you been, what's your experience with the wing? Back to the wing. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm interested in why people would invest in something um, that is supposedly trying to change the world. And I think the the fact is they weren't investing in something that was going to change the world. Um, they really were just being served up a very valuable demographic, wealthy white woman uh, on a platter that brands could then cater to. So that's their economic model. And full disclosure, I also at one point had a business plan to create a co-working space for progressives, but we wanted to destroy capitalism. So for some reason, <laughs> nobody wanted to like invest, in, wanted that. invest in that. Yeah, <laughs> raise the millions. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like this brand of Instagram feminism, uh, you know, the somehow RBT is like not actually very, <laughs> scary uh to people who uh you know benefit from the status quo so like i just love that they actually got called out for it uh because their whole business model from the beginning was based on exploitation and uh you know just serving uh you know making more money for big brands it's so um <laughs> It's funny you say that. The one time I ever spoke there was during my campaign and I felt very uncomfortable. Um, we brought in our team and I've like, I, first off, I didn't support Hillary Clinton. And so I walked into basically like a Hillary surrogates convention um, and they were like, oh, and it, was, it, was, it was just like, get me out of here. I'm going to die. Like the books are going to collapse on me. But we were, they were going around and asking all the female candidates, you know, certain questions and I, and some woman came up in the back, and I'm sure there's a, I think there's a recording out there. Um, so I'm paraphrasing, but she came up in the back and she asked a question. She goes, at a previous event, you said that being a capitalist was supporting the patriarchy. And I was like, okay. And she's like, can you please define that? It's like, um, all right, I'll keep it really simple. Have, do women control all the boardrooms? No. Who's making the decisions on behalf of these companies? Men. Okay. Let's just start there. <laughs> we'll move on to 102 class next week. Like it was the simplest thing, but it was, it was mine, but that shows you the disconnect. Like she thought she was getting me in a gotcha. And I was like, thank you for the advertisement. So there's some space in between, like, where do we, where do we meet them in the middle? I mean, is, is it, is it the pandemic? Is it the, the conversation we should be having around the pandemic? Like where do we meet them in the middle, Jamie? Um, 
I think that we can meet them in the middle. Like we can always acknowledge that like they're they're heroes like RBG. Like they've done a lot for us, you know. We I what one thing I don't like is how like leftist online we immediately like bash her after she died. And I was like, we can't do that. You have to you have to acknowledge what she did and the good that she did, even if she had some shortcomings. So I think one of the things is to do that. You know, you have to acknowledge the things that they also hold near and dear for them to even begin to listen to us what we hold near and dear so i think a lot of respect um that's one and two is just talking about a woman of color you know a lot of them you know trying to get into those spaces and saying how different issues affect me as a woman because i mean historically the the suffragette movement it excluded women of color you yeah. know they got to they got the right to vote in the 1920s but like women of color was like all way into the 60s so yeah. You know, you have to meet that disconnect. You have to get those people into those spaces and you have to also acknowledge, you know, what they have done. Right. Kate, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I would say it's things that I agree with. I love an unabashed ambition for women. Like, I feel like we should promote that. If, you know, I feel like women often are um, punished for showing like an interest in, uh, power. And I think that women, all, all women need to embrace power. Um, so obviously there's like a million different points of, um, <laughs> where Instagram feminism can actually, uh, if it just like broadens its vision, it can find, um, solidarity with, um, you know, more of a working class vision of feminism. I think we all need to come together and build a whole different system because the one that we have right now is um, driving me insane. I am a mother of four and I am going stir crazy during this <laughs> pandemic. So I think the woman that is currently like encompassing, like like doing a really good job. I think of like meeting people in the middle with that is AOC. She right. like the white feminists, they love her. Like they love her. They adore her because she will go on Vogue. She'll do her makeup, you know, she'll do like <laughs> interviews, you know, fluff pieces because like people like that, you know, you have to try to get into the mainstream and people do enjoy that when she talks about women empowerment. I think the biggest moment was when she uh, addressed that senator that called her, you know, the B word. <laughs> and, and she know her speech, you know, she like really reeled it in that like as a woman, you know, you, you can't call her that. She is a congresswoman. Right. And yeah, those moments are when uh, white liberals, you know, fawn over her. And I, I see no problem in that if she's bringing her, bringing her platform to the mainstream. So if, you know, if she gets attention, that's good for me because, you know, the issues she cares about, I care about. So like, I think Chrissy Teigen is like a huge fan of hers. You know, Chrissy's not a white woman, but she's very popular in the mainstream. So a lot of people right. get mad at that, you know, they, they see it as like liberal stuff to do performative, politics is performative, so. Exactly, and if, if we can use their performative uh, games as much as, as as they do, and and hopefully it's for the better. It's like they're the, you know, it's the candy that brings them into the policy, <laughs> easing them in. I mean, I feel, I think we have bigger things to worry about than the wing. For example, like, I just you find think? it really. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was such an interesting display no, 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 of no. the collapse of, of, of no, feminist I liberalism. I love, like, <laughs> crapping on things like the wing. But, um, but I mean, the thing that really gets me is just this idea that, I mean, and this is kind of controversial on the left, but I do feel like there was so much more venom directed at Elizabeth Warren, for example, from the left than there is towards Joe Biden. Yeah. Like I, and I do feel like that had a lot to do with like just him being this like white male who just is kind of inoffensive. He's just kind of there. But you know, the fact that they would repeat the Pocahontas slur that Trump um, came up with, you know, I heard that all the time from the far left. And I feel like Women, I mean, also it did hurt when, you know, Trump called Kamala Harris a monster, even though I didn't support Kamala Harris. It's just like, I do feel like women um, are still so much more vulnerable to this sort of vitriol and this hatred. Um, and, you know, it's directed at all of us of all colors and all classes. And so, um, you know, I just, and I, and I knew like far left women who said that they were gonna vote for um, Biden in the primary because they just wanted to win. And I just feel like we're oh my all... God. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like a lot of 
you know, even left feminists are giving up. Like she had experienced enough discrimination in her life. Um, you know, she was older that she was just like, there's no winning. So we might as well vote for the white guy because, you know, we need at least somebody who will, you know, be a little nicer to us than the right wing candidate. So, and they just thought it was an um, inevitable, inevitable, inevitability. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there, I, Jamie, I think we've had this conversation about the Warren, um, Listen, I didn't support Warren. I, that's not that people know that. Um, but I did find it frustrating at times when folks were putting a lot of their attention on Warren rather yeah. than Biden, who, Biden. yes, he was not doing well, but he had the entire I mean, unless you just woke up this election cycle, he had the entire establishment always supporting him. And yeah. and I just didn't understand why, like, there was no Warren Bernie vote split like she was receiving upper middle class and above very educated voters that never supported Bernie and probably would have gone to Pete Buttigieg instead. What do you think, Jay? I mean, was, was it, yeah, was I that rooted in? no value in keeping so much energy to Elizabeth Warren. Like she was like, if anything, she was closest to Bernie. Yes. There were stark differences, but like, it was just a waste of time to ever really give Elizabeth Warren that much attention and vitriol because it just, it left people's like, it left like a bad taste in people's mouths, especially, like I said, people that are more liberal leaning yeah, to attack Warren like that. And I, honestly, like I never saw her as the bigger threat than Biden. Biden had the entire establishment lined up um, behind him and Warren didn't. And even after she dropped out, you know, there was never like a big push for Elizabeth Warren to like, to, to be in his administration right now. She, they still haven't talked about her having a bigger role. Like I haven't seen it yet. So people uh, would say like Elizabeth Warren is like more with the establishment. Like like that she's secretly plotting with Joe Biden to be his VP. And I was like, that's not gonna happen. No. She's not they're playing her. I mean, yeah, I, that's her. what I think. Yeah, they were playing her. And I just thought it was just a waste of time. Like we wasted way too much time on Elizabeth Warren when we should have been focused all our energy on Joe Biden. He was but ultimately, that's that's exactly the point, though. It's like they wanted to pit us against each other. Yeah, and, and it worked. It worked. We know all the differences, right? We could go, <laughs> I could personally go through them ad nauseum, but it's it, it doesn't actually move you forward in any way. Yeah. And I think that was what really was so smart about like Dave Sirota, who was always coming back to Social Security and and Joe Biden, which was a great conversation for the primary. <laughs> but right now... Not the conversation uh, as we're facing Trump. Okay, so before we wrap up, I know we had a lot that we wanted to go through, but um, just I, I'm going to ask a, a very simple but a simple question that has a lot of answers, but it is very it's it's this is what's dominating like the left Twitter right now, which is how I'm going to frame it from the perspective of women. How do you think women's lives in America are going to be materially different? Um in a Biden administration versus a Trump administration, either now Trump or Trump continuation. Whoever wants to go first, just chime in. Uh, well, I mean, if you just like try to imagine a world with Trump, like forget just women, like I think the whole thing is gonna collapse. So I can't even like picture <laughs> exactly specifically my woman life versus everybody's life. I think the environment's gonna collapse. I think that, we're going to, uh, you know, fall into some sort of, you know, maybe cold civil war <laughs> among uh, members of our, our own country. Like, I, I'm sorry, the anytime I think of like Trump continuing to be in office, I just see, like, I think democracy collapses. Like, I think he then, um, you know, really brings in the authoritarian fascist elements. Like, it's all just going to really go downhill. So, yeah, sure, let's go all Handmaid's Tale. I can, I can see that <laughs> happening. Like... Yeah, certainly, um, you know, people like to equate Biden and Trump to be the same thing. They're far from it. You know, Biden is not perfect, but a presidency under Biden would be much better for women and people in general. You know, people say, like, don't go back to sleep. And it's like, no one's going back to sleep. People are going to put pressure on Joe Biden. You know, there is a populace that's awake that wasn't before. Um, you know, I like to say Bernie is the reason so many of us are awake after 2016. We way more involved in politics. And, you know, that didn't really... Oh no, she froze up. <laughs> she oh no, right. she's on a roll. <laughs> I was like, come on. Wait, we lost you for a second, Jamie. Back. <laughs> You're back. You were talking about Bernie and well, he woke everybody up. Yeah. You know, Bernie did a lot. He woke people up. He woke the populace up. And before that, um, we didn't have this large movement under Obama. Like people were fighting um, 
for our rights under Obama. There are people putting pressure on Obama, but it's not as wide scale as it was now. So I feel he radicalized a lot of people. And now those people are awake and they're ready to fight. They're ready to, you know, um, push Biden on a lot of issues. And I just think that it would be foolish to ever like think that we would be better off under Trump in any circumstance. You know, a Biden presidency would be a lot better for everybody. Um, we also have people that have been elected to Congress. There's a lot of down ballot races. Progressives have won. You know, we are slowly building power. So I think that power would be halted and, you know, almost like strangled under a Trump presidency opposed to a Biden one, where we could do some things. I think a lot of people are very um, all or nothing, but I think mm-hmm. people get a lot of things done. Maybe not everything, but more so than we would have ever under Trump. And you, you had a great tweet. Um, I wish I'd had it ready. I'm sorry about that. But you had a great tweet basically saying, like, I'm sorry, no, Biden would not put forced hysterectomies to women who are yeah. in detention centers. I and- was like, yeah, when you when you when you say Biden and Trump are the same in immigration, I was like, please show me evidence of forced mass forced hysterectomies on women in detention centers. You know, uh, right now, people like uh, people are being, you know, sprayed with these chemical cleaners during coronavirus and they are choking you know people are being put together like cattle and not giving tests like you know the whistleblower nurse i I forget her name right now so sorry you know she really like brought to light all the horrible atrocities that are happening right now to immigrant women just to people in general and detention centers and as much as you can say biden and, and obama deported so many people which is true they did they were lacking but you can't deny that they did pass DACA. They also tried to pass um, DAPA for the parents of the Dreamers. You know, right. it, it would have helped a lot of people. Would have alleviated so many. And to their credit, if Hillary had won, I would say they would have kept. You know, DACA. They would have pushed for DAPA. You know, those things wouldn't have been taken taken. You know, taken out. You know, Trump always, anytime anything for the economy happens, he puts Dreamers as like hostages. Like either you do this or the Dreamers go. And it's just so gross to see people like being used as pawns and you know That's right. i think we need to acknowledge that like pe- a lot of people's like lives are at stake if trump were to be reelected, especially people in detention centers like i've been to court before i've, I've sat for hours i've listened to many people tell their stories and so many times the judge like off the record will say i'm sorry but you're just gonna have to wait for another administration like the best i can do for you is um you know, hear your case in three years hopefully somebody else is gonna come and like to have people tell like to know that like you know, imagine someone telling you your life is uncertain for the next three years. You just have to hope and pray, you know, it'll change. And a lot of people miss that, you know, especially on the left. Um, they'll say, like, oh, it's, it might as well accelerate things, you know. And it's like, no, you can't think that way. Like, you, How can you be a humanist and then say things like we should accelerate climate change disaster? Yeah, I mean, there's just there's no... This is the part of the left that I'm like, and it's a small version of it, but yes. they're very loud. And I don't know if everybody in that space is necessarily um, authentically in that space. Like, you know, Republicans love to throw in, I mean, just to study Roger Stone and his tactics of the last 50 years. They love to throw in folks to disrupt and, and, and change the, the conversation quite a bit. But you, how can you be a humanist? How could you be a Bernie Sanders supporter? Somebody who who wanted to demilitarize this country, who's who's fighting for immigrants, who's fighting for working people across the board, and then say things like, "We need to accelerate everything, accelerate climate change." So what? So so more families' homes can be swept up in hurricanes and in in tornadoes, and you know the folks who are on the front line of climate change in major cities are people of color, women. Um, I just it, it, drought. I mean, there's there's water crisis. That's just one issue of climate change. And say what you will about Biden and they love fracking or whatever they were saying. They at least have a comprehensive climate plan that they're going to be held to account. Because one thing I'll say about the Democrats and Kate, you've been around for a long time. So I'd love to to, to, to hear if you think I'm right. Democrats will get away with whatever they can get away with. But once they can't get away with it, they can't get away with it. You know, charter schools were basically funding the divide in the Senate in New York State and and the real estate industry. Charter schools were mainstream in the Obama administration. Now it is Betsy DeVos land. It is is not a great look. And this is just in the last 10 years. Not a great look to be a Democrat who supports charter schools in any way. And this is just like the height to to the lowest point. So now that there's an awake, organized activist community, mm-hmm. Biden's not going to be able to get away with with 
a crime build in 2020. <laughs> yeah, no. No, everybody had so much faith uh, and hope in Obama in 2008. He came into it, and that was very dangerous, that we all thought that he... Uh, there was even a meme like, don't freak out, I've got this. Like, we, I don't think anybody thinks that Biden has this. I think we all know it's actually <laughs> in our hands. Um, and I have a lot of faith in Gen Z. Like, they are very creative. And uh, I think that they, <laughs> memes I have seen, they're ready to quote bully Biden. So um, <laughs> I think that they will change the world with their memes. No, I think that- um, Don't, don't no, incentivize I, them that way. Cause I've actually <laughs> heard that before. <laughs> we had some folks in my campaign were like, don't worry, I got this. I got some memes for you. And I was like, oh, but are you gonna knock on doors too? Okay. <laughs> Meet somebody out. Coming <laughs> doors is lame, man. Yeah, but I do believe that there's going to be a much more mature movement that um, will come out of a Biden presidency that will be very exciting and it will be forced to innovate. And uh, it's a whole new generation of activists that are going to have their own vision. And I don't see, you know, uh, eight more years of, you know, what happened during Obama, where it just sort of, you know, they called it the veal pen, where all the sort of professional activist groups were all sort of um, huddled together and told to stand down. And yeah. and a lot of them did and a lot because they wanted, quote, access. And I think we know that access isn't going to, uh, you know, change anything that comes out of the White House. So I think that's right. That's we have lovely members, uh, memories of the professionalized. I mean, I, I will always say this on the show and um, always be careful of leftist institutions because <laughs> They depend on a lot of money and big donors. And I I just, you know, when I look for activists, I look at who's on the ground, who's organizing with several different groups, choosing which fights to get in, in, involved with those groups and which not. But if you're attached to an institution or an organization, you know, you look back at the mid 2000s and how many popped up from you know, out of nowhere and were funded by billionaires with those billionaires agendas. And, you know, if you really want to take on capitalism, don't look to an institution to solve that problem. So, or even some rich people who are bored and like want to, you know, help your cause. It's going to distort everything. Yep. Yep. Like, you know, Tom Steyer. Um, <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Jamie, happy birthday once again. I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> all right, guys. <laughs> Special thanks to Harvey K and everyone mixing it up in the live chat. And big thank you to our moderator, Bob, for all the help. Uh, I think that's all we have for today. So thank you to everybody. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, if you haven't voted already, and you can, if you can vote in person. Also, if you have early voting, make sure to do so. Uh, this is what matters. Millions of people are voting right now. So make sure to get those votes in. And remember to research down ballot. Like Brianna said, vote down all the way up. All right. We will see you next week. Thank you.